We're going to continue our series in the book of 1 Thessalonians this morning. So if you want to, uh, you can turn in your Bible. You can find that text printed in the bulletin as well. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 2, we're going to begin in verse 17. Uh, I've mentioned before to you, I'm, I'm sure, that the television series alone, which comes on the History Channel, it's a bit of a reality television show. And the way alone works is that they take 10 individuals and they place them alone by themselves on various parts uh, of Vancouver, British Columbia. I think one season they went to, to Patagonia. And you're basically by yourself, you're isolated, you get to take 10 items with you, and whoever manages to stay out there by themselves long enough, living off the land, they win $500,000. Uh, the first year, a deer hunter from Georgia won, not, not surprisingly. He was able to stay by himself uh, for 56 days. Uh, the next year, somebody, I think it was a missionary actually this time, made it 66 days. And then the third season, somebody actually made it alone for 87 days. Uh, and my family, as we watch this show, we like to speculate on how different people would do on alone. Like, how would John Wright do if he was on alone? And, and we, we try to figure out, like, who do we know that would be good at this show? Uh, we've got one friend, family member, who's kind of a modern-day MacGyver, who we think he would just rule this show, but I can't really tell you about him because they don't have to kill you. He's kind of one of those kind of people. Uh, the other person we decided who would do really well on this show is Philip Swicegood. Uh, our own Philip Swicegood would just would just rule this show, so we need to get him on this show somehow. Then we get to split all the money. You didn't know that part. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna share it with you. Uh, and, and you know, I think about this show, and I think if I had outdoor survival skills, which I don't, but but if I did, I think I could do pretty well on this show. Because I can just kind of stoic my way through it. And like, okay, whatever, this is just, I'll just make it through this. But I think the thing that would get me at the end of the day is the thing that gets almost everybody at the end of the day. You're, you're, you're by yourself, but you can't just tune out and like read a book or just do your thing. You have to talk to the camera that they've sent with you. And you have to process your emotions to that camera. So you can't just stuff it. You have, you have to speak it out loud. And so you start talking out loud about how much you miss your wife or your husband or your kids or the dog or direct TV Sunday ticket. Like it just starts to it starts to get to you these things that you really miss so badly. You're you're sharing these raw emotions in front of everybody and, and, and after a while the speaking those you, you just can't take it anymore. I think that's what this section of 1 Thessalonians kind of is. It's Paul sharing his raw emotions. He's been separated from this church that he's planted in Thessalonica. And he's sharing his heart, uh, his love for these people, his, his fears for this church, and his longings for this church as well. And as we... Read this together. I think it will give you some idea, not just what he longed for for them, but what we as your, your pastors and elders at Grace long for for you. And what you ought to long for in the lives of those who you seek to minister to yourselves. Uh, just a reminder before we read this, uh, Paul and Timothy and Silas uh, had planted this church in Thessalonica they had to leave. Paul sends Timothy back because he's concerned about the church there. Timothy brings a, a very good report back to Paul. And then he writes this letter 
to the people there. So let's look at this together. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope, our joy, our crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you that uh, in seeing something of Paul's heart, we see something of, of your heart for your people and what you desire for us. Uh, I pray, Father, that you would give me clear words, and that you give us clear minds so that we could hear and receive uh, your word this morning. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the question is, uh, what do we want to see in the lives of the people we minister to? And then, why do we want to see that, and how do we bring it about? So first of all, what are, what, what are some things we want to see in the lives of the people that we're ministering to? You know, if you were to ask a farmer, all right, what do you want to see at the end of the year? He'd say, I want to see a crop. I want to see fruit. I want to see vegetables. If you were to ask a drill sergeant, what do you want to see at the end of basic training? He would say, I want to see soldiers who are equipped and who are ready to fight. But if you were to ask me, if you were to ask one of your elders here at Grace, what do you want to see in our lives? What do you want to see in the life of this church? What would we say? How would we answer that? There's really a lot of different ways you could answer that. Uh, We could answer you by saying, we want to see the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, We could answer you by saying, as as we do in our our goals as a church, we want to see you loving God and and loving your neighbor and and loving Spartanburg. Uh, Or we could say these three things that I think Paul communicates to us here in 1 Thessalonians. Um, He wants to see us established in our faith and growing in love 
uh, and, and just just growing in love for the people around us and growing in holiness as well. So first of all, he wants to see us established in our faith. Look in chapter three, verse two. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. And then skip down to verse 10. As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. In your faith. In other words, he wants to make sure that they understand the basic teachings of the Christian faith. That they get that and they're firmly grounded in that. Now, why is that so important to him? That they be firmly established and grounded in the faith. Well, imagine a tree that doesn't have very deep roots. And then imagine a tree that has deep roots. And the way that those two different trees are affected by a strong wind that comes through. The one without the deep roots is going to be blown over by the winds that come. And Paul wants these believers to to be established in their faith so that when the winds of life come, they won't be blown over by them. And he mentions a couple of different winds of life that will come and will test our faith and, and show it for what it really is. One of those winds that come is affliction, suffering, uh, and the other is temptation, he mentions in verse 5. You know, it's, it's easy as believers to kind of look at the world around us, to look at the way people are living around us and say, that, that looks kind of attractive. That looks like a better deal than, than what I have here uh, as a Christian. That looks like a better way or a more pleasurable way or even an easier way. Uh, the psalmist in Psalm 73, if, if you're ever feeling like that, he wrestled with this. Uh, when he said, I, man, I look around and wicked people are fat and happy and everything is going well for them and nothing is going right for me and what good is it for me to follow God anyway? Uh, temptations are one of those things that can blow us over, that can draw us away from God. Uh, But suffering can eat away at our faith as well. Why, God? Why did did this have to happen? I was talking to a friend recently who's really wrestling with what he believes because his dad died about a year ago. His dad who he had prayed for, and his dad was, was not a believer, and he died not a believer. And so this friend of mine is really wrestling now, like, do I really believe in hell? Do I really believe that my dad's in hell? Do I I really believe what the Bible teaches? Can I really teach this to other people? Uh, In the Old Testament, in the the book of Job, as as Job and his family are suffering, his wife looks at him one morning and says, Job, why don't you just curse God and die? Like, Why don't you just throw the towel in on this? Our our suffering uh, puts pressure on on our faith. Temptation puts pressure on our faith. And so Paul knows that's going to happen in the life of the church at Thessalonica. He knows that's going to happen in our lives. So his concern is that we be established and rooted in the faith so that we are ready when those times of testing come. Uh, the second thing he wants to see in our lives here is love. Verse, look at verse 6 of chapter 3. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love. 
And then skip down to verse 12. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. Uh, Paul's excited here. He's excited about what he's heard from Timothy. And he prays that the, the Thessalonians will abound more and more in love. Now, that's not really a surprising one. We're, not, we're never surprised when a preacher tells us we need to, to love people more. Those are the, the two greatest commandments that Jesus gives us. Love God and love your neighbor. So these are kind of obvious to us. But I think it's important to, to think about the fact that these remind us that our faith is not meant to be just a body of facts. Just an intellectual idea that we carry around in our head. But that it actually leads to a heart that loves God and loves other people. Uh, I had a youth minister friend a few years ago who was, he was really concerned that the, the kids in his youth group, that they were going to go off to college and they were going to face all these attacks on their faith and that it would cause them to drift away from the faith. And so he wanted them to be intellectually prepared for the challenges that they were going to face on a college campus. And he, he tended to paint the campus as this very hostile environment to the faith uh, of, of the kids in his youth group. I had another friend who was a, a campus minister who said essentially, yeah, that's fine, but that's not the real problem. That, that, that's not the real problem. The real problem is not that these strong Christians are going off to college and being torn away from the faith because they're not intellectually ready to face the challenges that they, that they run into there. The real problem is that they were apathetic about Jesus to start with. The real problem is that they they never really loved Jesus. They just had this body of information that they carried around in their heads. And all college did was expose that. Kind of like a a heavy truck going across a bridge exposes the cracks in the bridge that were already there. So let me ask you just to think about Uh, There are certain people that you love, right? There are certain pleasures that you love. There are certain hobbies that you and I love. We get excited about. Where does Jesus fit into that? Is is kind of this just sort of a, a head thing that we do? Or a ritual that we do? Or is there any heart connection, any heartfelt love for Jesus within us. Uh, how do you feel emotionally about Jesus? Uh, but then we know that in the Bible, love is, is not just an emotion, it's actually an action as well. It's something that we do. Uh, this really struck me recently. I was taking my study week and I was staying in the cabin of a friend of mine and they had a, a, a blackboard up on the wall in the kitchen and on that blackboard, they had written the words of 1 Corinthians 13. And it's, it's, it's nothing uh, more than you would see printed in the words of the Bible. But there's something about it when it's in big letters and it's on the blackboard and you're like seeing it every day and you're not accustomed to seeing it every day. Um, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoings, but rejoices at the truth. And, I mean, it's so easy to say, I'm supposed to love God and love my neighbor. And just to really think about that in a very generic sense. 
Like, yeah, that, that's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm loving God and I'm loving my neighbor. But then you read those words of 1 Corinthians 13 and you're like, man, I've really got a long way to go if I'm actually going to love the people around me. Uh, Paul wants to see us established in our faith and growing in love. And then he wants to see holiness. Look at verse 13. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. Uh, one way you look at, might look at this is that faith produces love. And what love looks like is holiness. Um, the Ten Commandments. These are not just random rules. But they're actually teaching us what it looks like to love God. And what it looks like to love our neighbor. The first four commandments, here's like, you don't have to figure it out. I'll tell you what it looks like to love God. And then commandments 5 through 10, here's what it looks like to love your neighbor. Like, we don't just get to define love nebulously by whatever we want to. But God shows us what it looks like to be loving to other people. And His goal for those who, who are His, for believers is that we grow in love, and as we're growing in love, that means we're growing in holiness as well. And that looks like obedience to His commandments. And not just a pharisaical obedience where we just, like, we're checking the boxes and we're doing what we're supposed to do, but obedience that comes out of a heart that loves God. That God is actually after holiness in our lives. Now, that doesn't mean that we earn our salvation by our holiness Uh, the gospel is this good news that Jesus has come to rescue people who aren't holy Uh, people who don't keep the commandments that through faith in him our sins can be forgiven but that same gospel that saves us is also meant to repair that brokenness about us God's at work changing us And making us holy. Making us people who love others. And that's a work that he actually calls us to take part in. There's an older book, not not that old, but um, 20 or 30 years old. There's a book by Jerry Bridges called The The Discipline of Grace. And he's got this chapter in it and it's called Dependent Discipline. He says, imagine that you're on an airplane. And the airplane has two wings. And one of them is about to break off. Which one would you rather break off? Well, he's kind of like, well, that's a silly question. You don't want either of these wings to break off. He says, okay, imagine that on one of these wings is written dependence, on the other wing is written uh, discipline. That this is the Christian life, that it is both dependence and discipline, that this is how we become holy through both of the wings of this plane. We need to hear Paul's words to Timothy Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Like, he says that. But we also need to hear his words here. May the Lord make you increase. May God make you increase and abound in love. We need to hear both of those things. And the reality is, though, is we're, you know, we're the plane going through the turbulence of life. The, the wings kind of have to do like this. And sometimes you need one of those things emphasized a little more. And sometimes you need the other of those things emphasized a little bit more. If you've grown up in a very legalistic background, the fact that we're totally dependent on God for any holiness in our life 
is very freeing and very refreshing and very needed. But if you've come from a background where it was kind of a, well, just kind of let go and let God and, and you're saved anyway, then you may need to be encouraged more to be disciplined and to pursue holiness. Sometimes we need to hear Galatians. Sometimes we need to hear James. Uh, but the reality is to be well-rounded in our pursuit of holiness, we need all of these things. So, how many times have I said holiness now? Pro- probably more than you've heard in the last two months, right? Because, like, I think we've kind of gotten allergic to this word in the church because of all the connotations that it has. It has, like, this goody-goody legalist sort of connotation. So we don't even like the word anymore. Does, it, does the word bug you? Does, does the word sound too religious to you? I, I think I'd, I'd simply remind us that holiness is just love in action. That holiness is love being acted out. And so Paul's goals here for the Thessalonians is that they're established in the faith. And that they're loving God and they're loving other people. And that they are actually growing in holiness. Now why? Why is this such a big deal to him? Why does he want to see these things? Well, he cares about them. It's obvious all through this. He wants what's best for them. Uh, that's written all over them. But, but I, I point out here that he loves them so much that his joy is tied up with their joy. And his glory is tied up with their glory. Look at verse 19 and 20 of chapter 2. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Now, you kind of read that like we don't really talk like that. And, and you're like, what, what exactly do you mean by that, Paul? Paul views himself, I think, as the farmer and the Thessalonians are the result of his labor. They're the, the public evidence of what God has done through him. And he longs to see them mature and complete and, and standing before God with him having run the race well. So his glory and his joy is tied up with their glory and their joy. Um, I think, we, we, like that seems kind of weird to us, but I think you actually get this. If you're a sports fan, you get this, right? That your glory and your joy is tied up with the performance of your team. Because when, when our team loses in a bad way, we're crushed, Right? When they win, when they're victorious, when they win the national championship, whenever we, we like feel like we have part of that glory with them. Our glory and our joy is tied up with them. Parents, you understand this in relation to your kids. Like when, when your kid does well, when they receive honors, maybe they're the first one in your family to graduate from high school. Your, your joy is tied up with them. Or, or when they, they're not doing well, you know what, what's that saying? We're only as happy as our, our least happy child. Our, our glory and our joy is tied up with them. When you're in one of the caring professions, you know, counselor, clergy, paramedic, doctor, like engineering, you guys don't care. Um, just kidding, Dylan. <laughs> um, and whoever else. 
but, but that's how we label these, right? And, and when you're in one of those professions, it feels like you have to develop a, a degree of stoic detachment from the people that you see every day. Because there's just so many and there's so much coming at you. And you're like, I, I can't take all of this on myself. And so you tend to kind of push that away from you. And I'm not saying you can emotionally feel the weight of every person that comes into your office or that comes for counseling. But man, Paul was not stoic. Paul was not stoic. He didn't self-protect by being stoic. He didn't flatline his emotions. His joy was tied up with the spiritual well-being of his spiritual children and how they were doing. How would that affect how we thought about the people to whom we minister? Whether it's professionally, whether it's as an elder, whether you're leading a small group Bible study, whether it's just the people you're dealing with every day and, and, and want to minister to them. How would that affect that if we love them in such a way that our joy was tied up with their joy? Like if we, we felt that in the way, just in, a, in the smallest amount, in the same way that we feel about our children or about the teams that we reap for each week, that our joy and our glory was tied up with them. If, if they weren't just a, a project, but that we loved them in that way. But Paul wants to see the Thessalonians established in faith, growing in love, and blameless in holiness because he loves them and his joy and his glory is tied up with theirs and how they're doing. Now, and I'm going to do this last part quick, um, how can we hope to bring that kind of transformation in the lives of those to whom we minister? Three things real quick. Uh, One, Paul demonstrated his love to them. We saw this earlier verses where he where he said I shared not just the gospel but my life with you you know that saying people don't care how much you know until they know uh, how much you care Uh, I have a a friend who says the way we all like to do evangelism is we want to take all our old clothes and tie them up in a garbage bag and then drive through the difficult part of town and tie a track to the garbage bag and throw that out the window and keep keep going like we don't, we don't really want to share our lives with the people that we're ministering to. But if we really want to see people change by the gospel, then people need to see that the gospel has actually changed us in a way that leads us to love them. And so we demonstrate love. Secondly, uh, Paul sent Timothy to teach and exhort the Thessalonians. There's a there's a propositional content. To Christianity, there's a, there's a body of truth that that we need to know. Um, are, are you putting yourself in positions where you can learn, where you can where you can grow? Are you teaching the truths of the Bible to your children? Uh, you know, we we print the text in the bulletin every week, and, and kind of in my mind, I'm, I'm starting to think, man, maybe we should just have a stack of Bibles back here because I don't know that we know how to like look through the Bible anymore like we used to even. And it just becomes this sort of isolated text each week. Are, are, are you availing yourselves of the opportunity to learn and to grow and the opportunities your children have to learn and to grow and to know the essentials? 
So he loved them and he taught them and then the last thing he prayed for them. Uh, Verse 10. As we pray most earnestly, night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. Uh, Psalm 127.1, let me read this. Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. We love people. We teach people. But for people's hearts to be changed, for their faith to be established, God has got to do that. God has got to do that. But that doesn't mean that we just say, Well, God's got to do that, so I'm just not going to worry about it. No, it means we pray that God would do that. And so I want to ask you to consider something this morning. We've started sort of informally one or two groups here at Grace that that I'm I'm calling a a prayer triad where a group of three guys or a group of three women simply get together and they share a life and they talk about the struggles they're having and what's going on with their families, and the, the, how they're doing spiritually, and the people they're trying to reach. And they simply meet on a regular basis. You can determine what regular is for you. Um, but they meet on a regular basis and, and pray together, and pray for each other. Would, would you think about doing that? Would you maybe pray about who are, who are two other people that I'd be willing to just be vulnerable, vulnerable with? Uh, and pray with on a regular basis, maybe maybe just twice a month. Do you think about that? Why wouldn't you do that? Why think about that question? Why wouldn't you do that, or something like that? Well, I want to close here with a song uh, from the Avid Brothers because it's been at least three weeks since I used one. Um, <laughs> And it's from a song titled, Ill with Want. And I want to read some of the lyrics of it. I am sick with wanting, and it's evil and it's daunting. How I let everything I cherish lay to waste. I am lost in greed. This time it's definitely me. I point fingers, but there's no one there to blame. A need for something. Now let me break it down again. A need for something, but not more medicine. I'm sick of wanting, and it's evil how it's got me, and every day is worse than the one before. The more I have, the more I think I'm almost where I need to be. If only I could get a little more. A need for something, now let me break it down again, a need for something, but not more medicine. Something has me. Oh, something has me. Y'all, we, we are surrounded by people who are ill with want. That, that, that describes to a T. They're sick with want. They want something so desperately to relieve the ache of living in a fallen and a broken world. And we know how that feels. Because we felt that too, and we still feel that in some ways. But we've also felt the love of the only one who can relieve those wants, who can do something about the brokenness in our lives and the brokenness of this world, and His name is Jesus. Will you look at the people around you? 
this week, will you look at the people around you and look for ways to love them and to speak the gospel to them? And would you pray for them as you do that, that they would meet Jesus and that they would have faith in Jesus and that that faith would be established and that they would then grow in love and grow in holiness. Let me pray for us. Father, we are all too often still ill with want, sick with want. And so I pray that you would continue to establish us in the faith. That you would grow us in our love for one another. That you would grow us in holiness. That you would just grow us in our relationship with Christ. That we would be filled with Him so that we would really know Him and have something to take and to offer to those around us who need Him so desperately. Father, would you work through us? Would you work especially in spite of us uh, to bring others to know your Son? We ask it in His name. Amen.